Well, good evening. Welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. I am your host, Keith Dent, and um, I'm glad you guys are here today. Uh, Let's see. This past year, we celebrated 50 years of hip-hop. But unfortunately, we lost some important hip hop hip hop artists during that time. You know, True True Goy the Dove, um, whose real name was David Jolacor, um, and it's oddly, very oddly enough, you know, just this past year, you know, they had just released their music on uh, you know the streaming channels. Um, DMX and Magoo, well, DMX died of as, as a result of a drug overdose. Um, Both Trugoy and Magoo died of illnesses that might have been prevented if they took better care of their health. So our our guest today, Dr. David Griffith, being a true hip-hop fan, took the death of these men uh, to heart, as well as a lot of people. Others like Malik Taylor, better known as Fife Dog, who had died, you know, a few years ago, you know, as well as Big Pun and Heavy D, and they had heart-related illnesses. Um, But is that really a microcosm of what we're seeing amongst our Black men in our communities? And we're going to talk about that on today's show and what maybe are going to be some of the remedies or what we can do about that. Uh, Dr. David Griffith is the director of the Center for Men's and Health Equity at Georgetown University, my alma mater. Um, And it was established in the summer of 2021 in the Racial Justice Institute. And, um, And so the center studies how social and cultural factors shape men's health. So I can't wait to really talk about this, especially, you know, how he felt about the hip hop legends and um, and then, you know, just some of the issues that he's seeing out, he's seeing in the community. So, um, Dr. Griffith, how are you doing today? I'm well, how are you? Um, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a little cold, but mm-hmm. uh, where we are. And I know in, in D.C., I'm sure it's cold, too. Uh, we used to hate winters in D.C. because <laughs> that wind would start whipping up the Potomac. And, uh, you know, it, but that's just a recipe to stay indoors. So, right. um, you know, so I just wanted to, you know, because I mentioned the deaths of the several hip hop artists. And they were, you know, an article that I read. And, you know, this is very heart wrenching for you. So I'd love to hear why that was. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me on the show and thank you for bringing up this particular topic. I mean, I think, you know, anytime we lose these kinds of um, artists, whether they be music or other types of performing artists and so forth, you also sometimes mourn the loss of the art and mourn the loss of what they also may have been able to contribute going forward. What are some of the music that we didn't get to hear? What are some of the things that they could have done in other areas of their lives? Um, so it's really just the the loss of of you know some of that feels almost selfish to me that you know I'm focusing more on you know more selfishly what could I have heard from them that you know would have also been particularly powerful and influential for me but um, 
you know, just also thinking about their families and loved ones and so forth, that there's just a lot that they, as people and as artists that we are, that we are missing when we've lost these men at this point in their lives. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm gathering you grew up around the era that I did. So who was your, who was your favorite artist? Who was your favorite rap artist? <sighs> see, now you really get me in trouble. <laughs> I mean, you see, I have the De La Soul sweatshirt on today. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely Tribe Called Quest. I mean, I, I grew up in Atlanta, so you know, I, I can't, you know, not talk about the groups like Outkast and so forth. I mean, so yeah, if I'm going to ever go home, then I have to talk about them. Um, but right, was right. definitely a fan of, of those um, Public Enemy, um, uh, X Clan is another one. So, yeah. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but do you, uh, because we could probably talk about this for a while. Mm -hmm. Do you like Andre's new, do you like the new album? Have I haven't heard, heard it? it. I haven't heard it, honestly. Okay, yeah, you got to check it yeah, out. You gotta yeah, check it out. But uh, okay, you know, okay. um, you'll be it, you'll be mellow. No, that, you can use it, with, <laughs> you can use it with, with the, for as far as a mental health study. So that's what go. I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think one of also the things that I that I found was that you know black men usually for the most part are dying from preventable deaths. So what are what are the three or four major um, illnesses or that we black, as black men are suffering from the most? Well, the, the type, the leading cause of death for black men are really very similar to that of most other Americans. So it's, you know, typically heart disease, different types of cancers in this era, um, or at least with the most recent data that we have from 2021, COVID was the third leading cause of death for most people. Um, then you have things like um, unintentional injuries or accidents. Um, and for black men, one of the things that's unique is homicide is one of the top five leading cause of death. Mm. So, um, And that's usually for younger, younger, the younger age groups, correct? It is, but it's, it's concentrated there. But if you're looking at black men overall, it somehow it because it's so high in younger men, it actually makes the top five overall with black men. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Right. But it's yeah, the, the the concept it was it was interesting as I was preparing for this. The concept of preventable death is a really tricky one because you know, you know, we're gonna die, so you can't prevent death, period. Right, right. It's just a question of, you know of when. When when are you gonna die? How ill are you going to be when you're living, and what are the kinds of things that what's your quality of life during that whole period? And so how do you think about what those things are? And unfortunately for a lot of black men, we tend to die in this middle age period or or um and so it's a question of why are we dying, you know, disproportionately before the age of usually retirement, like 65. Mm. You know, we have a, a very high, higher than most um, other groups of men or women um, rate of dying before the age of 60, 65. And so that's really one of the bigger questions is why is the clustering of all of these different things? And you mentioned all the different things that the different hip hop artists died from. Um, it ranges from everything from homicide to heart disease and so forth. And so it's it's not just one thing you can put your finger on, but we have to understand, you know, what is it about being a black man that puts you at risk, disproportionate risk for all of these things. And and it's interesting. I mean, and I and I know we have a lot of things to talk about, but just like for example, let's take Big Pun, right? I mean, his name was basically what made him I mean his talent, but 
mm-hmm. he was the name the person so yeah. how do you you know how, i'm just wondering how he could have really done anything about that because it would have in a way might have messed up you know the thing that he was known for well you think i mean you think heavy d is the same thing right. you know i grew up in the era of the fat boys i mean all of right. these are you know they played on that and you've seen you know, even um, thinking about other types of artists, actors, and so forth. Anthony Anderson, um, blanking on the comedian's name now, but he lost a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. But a lot of folks have had to make these decisions about, and and it's not the decisions about do I continue to utilize this identity and this thing that, while it's lucrative for me professionally, is harmful to my physical health and and may lead to my premature demise. And so that is actually a useful microcosm of a lot of the things that we deal with in men's health and particularly black men's health more generally, which is, do we continue to provoke, you know, focus on the things that are good for us professionally and prioritize those and, and sacrifice the attention that we need to put to our own physical health and mental health, you know, um, at the same time. And so we also are making those choices. It's usually not quite as visible and quite as obvious as, you know, we talked about another um, colleague of both of ours um, who re- who lost 200 pounds. Um, it's usually not quite that dramatic, but you do right. have these folks where, where you're making these choices about, you know, how much do I focus on my health versus focus on my professional success, investing in, you know, energy into good things, not just necessarily always bad things we're trying to promote an identity that is um, masculine in a way that is supposed to be negative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so, yeah. So give me a little bit of background about the Center for Men's and Health Equity and what what was your journey to getting to being the director? Why do you feel it was important for you to, I guess, to focus on this? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been focusing on these areas for ooh, more than fifteen years or so, um, and I said ooh only because I'm looking, I'm thinking about how many years that is. But <laughs> you know, it it really just started with recognizing that um, black men and black men's health issues were kind of um, to use a a term that came from focus that actually we've learned from black women and black womanist and feminist sort of literature, intersectionality, you talk about centering the margins. And the idea is basically, if you look at what is at the margins of um, health equity, and particularly usually that's focusing on race and ethnicity, that black men tend to be at the margins or gender as it relates to males and men tend to be at the margins of that conversation. When you looked at, when I looked at men's health and it tended to homogenize men and treat all men the same or you about black men in that context either yet the data would have suggested for either group that black men were dying at far higher rates than black women and certainly far higher rates than white men and so there was a need to put the energy and spotlight on black men because those things weren't happening and so the center was just a way to sort of highlight that as a starting point, not to make it the only place that we focused on different populations. We also do work on Latino men and actually do have done work that has direct implications for white men's health as well and other groups of men even mm-hmm. you know outside of the US. But we wanted to start by centering the folks whose health tended to be worse and that we actually had good data on. The other group we haven't really done 
as more indigenous men, just because we don't have the good data and access to a large population of those men, but um, have done some stuff with indigenous men in, Aust in New Zealand. I better not mix those up in New Zealand <laughs> um, and Australia, actually, for that matter. But um, yeah, that was kind of how the center started was really I've had centers at other institutions where I've been. And I just wanted, that was an important part of my identity and the need to, where I saw the efforts to address health equity needed to include. And we haven't seen that many people. We're actually starting to see more junior scholars focus on black men. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started doing this 15 plus years ago, um, there weren't that many of us around who were focusing on black men. And it was actually seen as quite a risky proposition to focus your career on a population that most folks didn't think is were necessarily valuable. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty deep. Uh, because I know in some some of the research that I had doing was doing, especially for um, our my previous show, was that it there wasn't a lot of data um, mm -hmm. that could be used, especially for like like prescription drugs and things of that nature to help the population. So I, I find it fascinating that, you know, w there's a population out there where it could support um, black men, but there was hard, it was hard for individuals to find data, but you basically were kind of saying the opposite since you've been focusing on this, that there, the data is there. It's just a matter of pe the people that want to find it being able, being able to. Or it's connecting little, with the right people. It's it's a little bit of both. I mean, wh when we look at, there are very few data sets that we use to inform policy in the United States that usually looks at sex and gender and race and ethnicity simultaneously. So usually in most tables, when we present data or see da data from like CDC and so forth, mm -hmm. they have one set of lines that's about race and ethnicity. And then you have a separate set of line that says sex or gender. And what I'm saying is um, things like life expectancy, premature mortality, you tend to see the crossing of those two. So you actually will see lines for black men, black non-Hispanic black men, non-Hispanic black women, mm. Hispanic men, you know, so and so forth. But for most of the normal data sets on like heart disease, cancer, so forth, you don't tend to see that. And you only tend to see here's for African-Americans, here's for white Americans, mm. here's for Latino population. Or Lat yeah, Latini populations. Um, you don't tend to see the crossing of those with the the gender variable, and so you do tend to see that invisibility that you can't see. And we've seen this with with Black women's health as well. It's just that I'm turning the lens a little bit to focus on Black men for a different set of issues, but we've seen that with Black women being invisible in a lot of health areas and health issues, and so their health is also suffering. And you know, again, this lens of intersectionality really comes out of studying um, them and the scholars, the Black women scholars who have really been pioneers in that space. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, and so, yeah, and that's kind of um, shifts the conversation a little bit about just men in general. Um, because I guess, in to, you know, in today's times, we have so much access to um, information. There's more doctors, especially black doctors, than there were before mm -hmm. um, when we had challenges, you know, with the syphilis study and not trusting the medical, you know, the medical system. Why are we still having the same 
challenges that we are that we had back then with us not trusting the medical system and then the fact that we have access to more black doctors so i'm actually not sure because there have been the the data are sort of um not consistent about whether or not there actually are more black doctors proportionally to say even when we lived during an era of jim crow segregation and um so more let me start with the first part more is about quantity not about quality so while we have access to more information mm. and potentially more providers we don't necessarily have access to better information and information that we see as directly relevant to the populations that we're talking about in terms of black men so colleagues like um, Stacy Loeb, who's a physician at NYU, has been, I've been working with her on various studies and she's the lead on this, um, looking at representation of um, prostate cancer information content um, online, for example. And so looked at 150 websites, 150 videos about prostate cancer and black, not surprisingly, very few of them, probably only about a third of them had somebody that looked and was perceived when we she had a panel of folks look at the videos and do you see a black person basically represented in the video and only about a third of those had actually somebody that appeared to be black in those videos mm. um, on the websites and, and even less than that probably about a fourth had some kind of black representation in terms of videos so it wasn't seen as directly relevant and so when black men would see it they would look at that information, but they weren't always clear because sometimes they wouldn't explicitly address the fact that for prostate cancer, simply by being a black man, you are at higher risk than other groups of men for potentially um, having prostate cancer and dying from prostate cancer. Mm, oh, but see. that's not necessarily factored in there. And so between the representation and the lack of explicit attention to yes, this is the general sort of sense of how we need to understand this, but we don't have good data on, you're not speaking directly to me. My risk is fundamentally different and higher than these other folks that this video is written, is designed for, and this information is designed for. You're not attending to my specific issues and needs. And so the, the more and the better and the appropriate are not always aligning. And the relationships uh, okay. with physicians you know, there are more doctors, but they're not necessarily more accessible to black patients. Um, and a lot of folks just are not going into those kinds of, particularly primary care areas and so forth. Um, we actually arguably had better access to physicians when we, I want to say, well, I'll just say it because this is, I believe this, but um, during segregation, we actually, in some cases, had better access to black physicians because mm -hmm. we were actually had to go see them. Right. And we had to, you know, and they we didn't have a choice. Life. We had to go. We didn't have a choice, but right. it also facilitated you had you had facilities that actually understood black patients. You had facilities with physicians, nurses and in treatment teams that actually understood their patients. They had relationships with their patients and, and they had a level of expertise of how to understand the uniqueness of that particular population that when now that we've um desegregated, mm -hmm. uh, we don't have that same kind of expertise with these popu with black populations, for example, and certainly not with black men. And so it is it's a far more complicated picture mm -hmm. um, in that regard. And so, yeah, there, it's that's why I said it's a little more complicated just because we have more access to information. 
we have to people have to sift through and figure out is the information accurate we have as much misinformation or disinformation where people are actively trying to um give you poor information or inaccurate information as you do folks who are just trying to you know just promote different products and so forth so it's like right, it's it's right. a it's a lot more complex of a field to navigate than before we had the internet okay yeah and so interesting because i wanted to um double down on what you said earlier um about having access to the information because i they uh, i watched actually cbs sunday morning uh today and they talked about prostate cancer um because the uh the attorney general attorney general is that right or um you know, who's black who has prostate cancer and then the oh, yeah. Charles, yeah mm -hmm. and so they mentioned black actually black men are susceptible to getting it um the disease but i was like well how many black men were actually watching cbs sunday morning so mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. so it, it's quite interesting to you know it's a great thing to ponder or, i mean are the shows where we may watch are they talking about um prostate cancer more and how it affects you know how it affects black men and more is more prevalent so mm -hmm. um and often more deadly right absolutely mm -hmm. and so one of the things that I wanted to turn to is more kind of the mental aspect of manhood. And I, I think I read across, came across an article where we needed to unlearn some of the principles of manhood. Uh, so we, you know, like we're expected to be tough, not show emotion, uh, not ask for help, uh, be resourceful and figure things out along the way. Um, or, and so in, I mean, I know in your studies, the, where, and we could talk about the program that you, you just embarked on in Atlanta, mm -hmm. were those some of the, um, components that came out in some of the discussions that they had as a group? Yeah. So, so in my work, we've talked about what you're getting at is this conversation about gender and how does it apply to males and men? Um, and how do we think about, you know, things like um, ideals of what it means to be male? And I distinguish that from being the ideals of what it means to be an adult man. The ideals of what we expect of males, you know, when we train little boys to, you know, if they fall down, you know, don't cry, you know, dust yourself off, don't worry about it. You know, it's only an arm, it's only a leg, you got another one, just keep going. You know, those kinds of things are what we, those are sort of standards that are not age specific. Manhood is something that actually includes an adult, to me, includes an adult component. And those are not necessarily the kinds of things that we're talking about here. Because when you think about the things that you aspire to be as an adult Black man, that you admire in other Black men and so forth, it has more to do with being responsible with being caring, mm -hmm. with being loving, with, you know, being accountable, um, being honest, trustworthy, those kinds of things. So it's it's a different set of criteria. And often those are more positive things that you're you're trying to balance and aspire to be in addition to some of the other things that you're describing in terms of, you know, can I drink you under the table, which tends to be something you, you know, we used to aspire to do. Um, perhaps in your younger years, college age and, and around those kind of things. 
you know, can I do things physically that are stronger, better, whatever that demonstrate mm -hmm. my physical strength or, or strength of character and so forth. So there are a lot of those kind of things that get mixed in there together. So in our work, we've tried to disentangle those and try to better understand how do men connect, particularly black men, how do they connect those ideals to health? And how do we work backwards from that to help them more explicitly connect? Well, if you want to live a longer or healthier life, if you want to, you know, be more active when you actually come home and not just be collapsed on the couch mm -hmm. and be a couch potato because you're exhausted from your day at work. If you still want to have the energy to actually engage with your kids, engage with your spouse or partner, then you may need to do things that actually require that. You would need to eat differently. You need to actually get adequate sleep. You need to actually make sure that, you know, you're physically active if possible. Like all of those kind of basic things, you tie them through that lens of what are you actually trying to achieve? What is actually important to you? And those tend to be more positive things than the things around masculinity tend to be more of the negative stereotypes that we tend to see and talk about more generally. But those aren't usually how men think about what it means to be a man as it relates to health and what it means to be an adult man, um, and particularly an adult black man. Mm -hmm. So let me get this straight. So we, when we view manhood kind of as adults or some of us, we look at it more the physical, uh, tangible things like being strong and being able to provide, but not necessarily the kind of the soft skill and tangible things that are necessary to to make the family well make maybe make the families whole, but things that you'll need to interact better with your um, kids, your partners. And require a little bit more, um, I guess, if you want to say caring and, and heart related things that may help to reduce some of the heart ailments that you have or the health ailments, sorry, that you have. So actually all of what you just described to me fits under the umbrella of manhood, meaning that these are the aspirations of what you'd expect of an adult male. Okay. These are the kinds of things that adult males would do. If you think about what are the ideals or what are the what are the kinds of characteristics that you might expect men to check off as boxes from if they're eight or 80, mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things about being strong, being tough, not asking for directions and so forth. Those are not age specific. Okay. When I'm saying that those kind of things that you were characterizing as soft skills, communication, caring, relational or being attentive to family, loved ones, and so forth. Those are all things that, to me, factor into into the men that we've interviewed and done focus groups with. They're consistent with what they see as what they're aspiring to do and to be and for people to know them for and count on them for as adult Black men, as okay. Black men, as opposed to being a Black boy or, or child. Okay. So, so it's, it's the age part that becomes a really important marker of what defines you as a what the characteristics that you're aspiring to demonstrate for yourself and to other people mm -hmm. and to be accountable for when other people see you or they know, okay, yeah, I know my dad is going to be there 10 times out of 10. I know he's going, you know, they're going to do whatever they can do to take care of this, right. take care of me, whatever. Those are the kind of things. It's not about being tough and strong and whatever. It's not, I can count on him, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in your studies, when kind of, when did that kind of start to kick in? as far as 
We haven't gotten to that. That's that's actually a great question. And that's one of the things that we want to better understand about younger men is when do they um, add that? Because oh, it does okay. it, because the complicating is like what you're saying, you know, still a lot of men in different depends on the context of, of when you, what you're trying to do and why. So, you know, when men get together, you may still try to say, OK, let's see, you know, some version of let's see how much we can drink. Let's see how many cigars we can smoke. Let's see, you know, whatever things that may be unhealthy. Let's right. see how fast you can drive a car. Let's see, you know, whatever. Those things may still persist and exist. But then there's another side of you that is trying to be an adult man where you're still like, I still love my family. I still want to care for my family. I still want to be there and make sure I'm taking care of their both, you know, um, basic needs in terms of having a roof over their head and, and money that they need or whatever, those kind of financial and other provider roles sort of things, but also just the availability, accessibility of being there for mm -hmm. your family and so forth. So those are things that are added to that. And we don't really know or haven't studied yet what age at which that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. It makes sense. But that, yeah, that'll be a great study. I look forward to hearing more about that because I think, especially when you hear a lot of, especially from the, cause I do relationship coaching. So from that side, you know, you hear about old oh, men haven't grown up or, mm -hmm. you know, we still have this challenge. So is it because of the lack of those skills that we have been able, that we need to accumulate in order to make our relationships better, not only with partners, but our children and things of that nature, the things that cause kind of the friction uh, in the first place. And um, so it'd be a great study to hear about. Yeah. Um, but I know that um, one of the things is the also the, being our ad, our own advocates as far as the doctors, because, you know, of mm -hmm. course, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. that even though there may be more black doctors or we may not just have that access depending on just the way our um, healthcare system operates and we don't, they're not concentrated in the areas of where we live. So how can we as black men be ad, better advocates for our own health? Because if we're dying of these diseases that are can be treatable, we we have to figure out how to work within the system. So mm -hmm. what are some of the things that we as Black men can do? Well, I think some of it is, is realizing, first of all, that a lot of the things that will make you a better advocate when you go to the doctor's office are really requirements of you to do things outside of the doctor's office. So having being well-informed when you go to the doctor's office is important, but if you're not Again, getting adequate sleep, if you're not eating, you know, trying to eat a healthy diet, um, trying to be physically active, trying to take care of yourself outside of the doctor, there's nothing really that the doctor is going to be able to do to patch you up to really do these kinds of things. Physicians are really more tend to be there more for fixing problems than necessarily preventing problems. Mm -hmm. If you're going to prevent problems and you're going to keep yourself healthy and you're going to work with your doctor as a partner in that work, you've got to do your own work outside of the doctor's office. You can't just go to the doctor and expect them to give you some drugs to patch you up and fix you back together, put you back together. So some of it is knowing what you need to do and being accountable outside of the doctor's office to do the things that you need to do to take care of yourself. 
in addition to going to the doctor to answer your question and being informed about what are the kinds of screening tests I need to get at certain ages? Um, what are the kinds of things I need to be doing to manage, you know, my um, hypertension risk or high blood pressure risk? What are the kinds of things I need to know about um, the doc? Let me say this a different way. The doctor's office is a place to get information that you can't get by living your life. So okay. the reason you go to the doctor, even when you're feeling fine, which is a lot of a lot of black men, when we've talked to them in, again, interviews, focus groups or small groups and discussion groups. Um, they I've, I've had a lot of black men say to me very proudly, I haven't had to go to the doctor in 10 years. And I'm like, that is not, you know, and I'm trying to find a nice way because it's okay. You know, wow, when you're, you're right. When you're gathering information, you, it's not the place to correct information. But, you know, at some point, we try to find a way to, to bring that in. Well, that's not actually a marker of success. That means you don't, you're less informed than somebody who has been to the doctor and, and more recently than you have. Because there's things about the way that you feel that cannot tell you what's going on in your body. And the doctor's office can give you information about things that you can't see, you can't feel, but that are going on or you can't identify and pinpoint. That's what you go to the doctor's office for, even when you feel fine. That's why you go to, you know, the doctor's office for regular well-man visits mm -hmm. is to get information about how is your blood sugar? How is your blood pressure? You know, how is your cholesterol and other things that are going on in your body that you're just not going to know? From getting that information. So some of the answer to your question about being a better advocate for yourself is also is to go to the doctor, even when you feel perfectly fine, to mm. make sure that you get the screening tests and the information and that you understand and that you sit and you ask enough questions to make sure you understand what are the things I need to do and I need to be accountable and responsible for um, to take care of my health. And who do I need to help put in place in my life to help hold me accountable? Now, we don't necessarily always want to have um, often we know that and my girlfriend loves to tell me, remind me about this, because I think I'm the one who said something to her about it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that men who are married or partnered or married in particular tend to live longer than those who are not. Um, and so part of that is because. Uh, we don't know actually the the secret sauce mechanism for it, but we do know that probably it seems to be that some of it is caring for things like um, you know eating healthier food and making sure that you you know are taking care of yourself, going making appointments for doctors and and those kinds of things, taking care of those basic needs mm -hmm. and so forth. And so you have to be willing to be held accountable for those things, even though we tend to not like it, we tend to benefit from it. And so it's, you've got to, you can't sort of, you know, um, harm the right. messenger, you know, when they're, when they're trying to help you, we don't always respond well to that. And I know that's a hard thing. Um, I'm not, uh, again, I'm, I'm equally, you know, guilty of like, oh, crap. Yeah, you're right. Um, I right. don't want to do this. Or I don't want to go see that doctor or do this or whatever, but going to the doctor is one of those things that has to go along with a larger, um, healthy lifestyle. And that, you know, putting people in place to help hold you accountable and help to make sure that you are healthy is good for you, too. And so but you want to reduce the amount of pressure you put on those loved ones on. And it's often for black men, um, women in our lives who do that, that are 
you know, doing that extra labor to take care of us and take care of our health needs as an expression of love and caring and, and concern. Mm -hmm. But that's extra pressure that they they we're not doing the same for them. And so mm. we have to do a better job of reducing the amount of pressure, expectation on them to do things like make appointments for us to go to the doctor. You can call the you know doctor's office as easily as they can. Like right. so, like, you know, like your phone works just like theirs is. So right. like you need to, you know, there's certain things that we can do to be better equipped, prepared, and so forth. So don't always rely on. Uh, women in our lives to do those kinds of things. So, you know, there are those negotiations. I'm not trying to tell, you know, black men how to live their lives and so forth. But what I am saying is they realize that there's a cost on both sides. When you right. don't take right. care of it yourself, somebody is going to pay that cost and somebody is still going to step into that space. And you're putting more burden on folks that you may call yourself loving and that that may actually be harmful to the people that you say you love. Mm, very deep, very deep. But and so then one of the things that maybe black men may push back on as well, they may say, well, I don't have access to health care because uh, mm -hmm. I don't have health insurance or what have mm -hmm. you. So what are the what are like three to five things that they could do actively to try to live a better health, uh, better healthy lifestyle until they do get access so one again, and you know, with the Affordable Care Act, they at least can try. Um, okay. That is why it is. That's why it exists. That's why it was created. Um, you know, you can be comfortable or uncomfortable with calling it Obamacare, but you can at least try to sign up for that and get you access to healthcare. Because again, there are going to be things that you can't find out by simply living, trying to live a healthy lifestyle by how you eat, what you eat, being physically active and those kinds of things, being vegan, and, whatever. Right, right. And not to, cut, not to cut you off, but what would be those things that someone could just say, oh, I'm, I'm good. I haven't been able to go to the doctor. What are some things they just won't be able to know unless they go to the doctor? Your cholesterol level, your heart rate. I mean, you, you know, how is your heart functioning? Um, is your heart in rhythm? Um, you may not know your, um, you may be able to check like your blood sugar, but you probably won't be able to check, you know, a larger marker of, you know, how is your, is your blood sugar in a, on a more regular basis um, at a level that is healthy or is it, is it too high and therefore needs to be changed by your lifestyle or something else. Mm. Um, you may not know if you have cancer and you have something, you know, cancers, you know, things growing out of control in your body from different things. You may not know if you have kidneys. I mean, basically anything that is a diagnosable problem, um, for the most part, we don't know until you actually go to the doctor and, and get those things actually diagnosed by somebody who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of right. things that don't bother us bother other people. So even if you get into like mental health things, you may just say, well, I'm just, you know, I just do things my way. I'm just sort of, you know, you can use that sort of grumpy, you know, sort of old man or whatever. Um, but the problem is if it starts to affect your relationships with other people, the ability for you to um, work and those kinds of things, because a lot of times mm -hmm. we'll have those issues where, it affects your social relationships and your work relationships. If it starts to affect those things, those are not just about your quirkiness or your deciding to have certain values. Those are things that actually 
a psychiatrist, a, a somebody who's a mental health professional can help you with. It's not about necessarily giving you drugs for it, but it is saying that those are things that by talking to somebody, by figuring out how you do those, there's a pro, there's a point at which mental health things about how you do things and how you live your life, how you communicate, how you function, mm -hmm. if they're starting to hurt other areas of your life, those are things that you need to pay attention to. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense that, yeah. And, and, and these are illnesses or diseases and that we could at least find out about. And if, if we're starting to feel the effects of them, then it's most of the time it's too late and it's hard to, to, I guess, reverse. Well, it can be, but a lot of things are not necessarily, I mean, you know, um, medicine improves every day about, you know, healthcare and so forth improves every day. We learn different things every day. A lot of things are, have a lower bar than we tend to appreciate. So I always say that depression, excuse me, is a relatively low bar, um, to have, you know, things like changes in eating, changes in sleep, changes in mood, um, you know, irritability, anger outbursts and so forth within a two, you know, that being consistent over two weeks, that's not a very high bar for a lot of people. When you go through some stuff like that is not, a, that's what a major depressive episode is. That is something that can be, a, that can benefit from you seeking professional help for that. Mm -hmm. right. But that is not what most people think of when they think of depression. They think of depression as being something Oh, no, you're sad. You won't get out of bed and so forth. That's a more extreme version of it. Mm. But depression and a depressive episode that can actually benefit from care and from treatment and from support can actually be something that is as small as like I was just describing. You have five of those five or six of those symptoms within a consistently within a two week period. That's considered a depressive episode. That's what people get treated for. So it's like we don't the point is you don't know those things. And you're not supposed to know those things because you ain't been to medical school. You haven't been to social work school to be a social worker to right. try you to you haven't been to nursing. So lean on the people who have that information who you're not. I mean, so that they can also help you. It's right. a team effort. So it's not like they're you. You still have the choice and decision to once they give you that information and give you access to that information. Oh, your cholesterol is a little high. Do you want to manage that by, you know, taking this particular medicine or do you want to try to change your lifestyle and, and do things differently about how you're eating and active and whatever to bring it down? And you can work with them to decide, OK, well, give me a couple of you know months, three months, six months, and then let's look at it again. If I haven't brought it down, then, OK, let's talk about this again. So it's not there's nothing you know, you're still in control. But the point is that going to the doctor should give you more information to make a better choice about how you're going to be in control of your own health and well-being. Right. Right. And I, and I think that's a that's a great shift because we need to look at doctors as advocates for our own health and not the kind of end all be all. And I think that's where the shift is, is where doctors are seen as the authority all the time. And so if they, if we feel they don't have our best interest at heart, where that may be one of the reasons why we don't go as, mm -hmm. as much because they're like, wait, <laughs> they're not they They don't own me kind of thing. Right. They're not in charge. And yeah. you know, you still, you still maintain that ability to be in charge of what you're going to put in your body, what you're Mm, we lost your we lost your video we lost your okay. audio. 
Oh, okay, it's back. Okay, unless you're in immediate danger to yourself or somebody else, they mm -hmm. you have con complete control over what actually happens to you in a medical care setting or not. Right. So you're going, but you're again, you're better informed because you have stuff that you can't tell by how you feel. That mm -hmm. you're not going to get access to that information by simply you know, looking at what you're eating, making sure that you exercise and do those kind of things where people try to have a healthier lifestyle. People have switched to, you know, vegetarian, vegan lifestyles and necessarily that hasn't, it can help with a lot of things with, as it relates to eating and health and so forth. But you have a lot of folks who, because of the way that they're eating, have not been able to get all of the nutrients and other, all of the kinds of things that they need out of that mm. diet. Right. So it's like you've got to have you got to make sure that you're getting all the access to information um, that you can and all the different sources of information that you can possibly get. OK, interesting. Um, so since you, you are overseeing the Center for Men's and Health Equity, I wanted to address um, kind of the issues of you know racism and how it affects men's men's health, mm -hmm. because one thing is that you hear is that men are you know women kind of do suffer some of the same issues as far as being how they're treated especially when it comes to maternal health and things of that nature mm -hmm. but it, they're not having the same they're not dying of those diseases uh at a higher rate than we are so why is that and how how does racism kind of play a part in that so it, yeah, you don't. We don't want to sort of get into what what I sometimes call the oppression Olympics. Like we're not competing with black women to see who gets who gets it worse, you know, in American society. Black women have a. It's it's really, it's just different. The racism, and particularly, we should name it as anti-black racism, is really different. Yeah. The expectations, the stereotypes that black women experience, and the reason. Um, have a similar root in anti-Black racism as it applies to men, as it applies to women. They're just different in how people see them. You know, we tend to, um, Black women tend to get, you know, seen as more exotic. And But you still have a lot of the things where their bodies are seen to be, um, their pain tolerance is supposed to be higher than, say, for example, other, other women. So mm -hmm. they may not get access to the same kind of pain medication. They may not get the same aggressive response when they say they're in pain, whether it's in labor, whether it's in other areas of their lives, they may say, oh, well, you know, you'll be fine. You can handle it better. You still have some who think that black people's skin is thicker and, and you know, whatever. So there are all these stereotypes that just look different in the lives of black men versus black women. It's not clear. Um, and we're still trying to better understand, you know, how much the, the racism that black men experience um, is is interesting and complicated in and of itself. Um, one of the scholars, her name is Adia Wingfield. She's now at, I think, Washington University in St. Louis, uh, wrote a book some years ago called No More Invisible Man, where she studied um, black men who were essentially in white collar jobs, higher income, whatever jobs. And she came up with this term called partial tokenism. And the reason I'm going into this is because there are some advantages that men are, are we men by definition in the U.S. Um, we make more money, tend to have. Um, well, the education is actually getting more complicated, um, given some right. recent data and so forth. But you know, there are a lot of advantages to simply being male in the United States. 
there it's not as universal as we once sort of understood and thought and some of the changes have actually started to to hurt men in their um, not just health but in terms of education income and so forth we have higher rates of unemployment so forth. right so right. It's, the point is it's what i'm what i'm saying and not saying is it's not a straightforward sort of thing and i know this keeps going out mm-hmm. um and it's just different from black women so we just want to be careful to not um compare it's really that they're just right. different okay. and so when it comes to black men i think the racism we experience you know it builds on a lot of the stereotypes um and uh, one of my um favorite other sort of um issues as it relates to this is elijah anderson who's a sociologist um at yale university wrote a book called um, the white space and there's a short there's a subtitle to it but he came up with this concept that there are places that black people have to go to and engage in and spaces we have to go to like the doctor's office, um, like employment settings, like other spaces that are um, not race specific, that were not necessarily designed for us to be there. Political office um, where, and so we don't get treated with the same, you get treated like you're an outsider, even though you actually are supposed to benefit from being in that space as well. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be accessible to you, but it in fact is not, and it wasn't designed for you to be there. Academic institutions, unfortunately, are another one of those spaces. And so higher ed and so forth, even, you know, we see a lot of the issues with um, even in elementary, middle and high school with um, black children, particularly black boys, getting higher rates of um, expulsions and other, the, the, the response mm-hmm. in those spaces tends to be disproportionate to what they've actually done. And so the point is like the the way the anti-black racism plays out is very much gender, but it's also context specific. And so all of those things, even if they're not health specific, have an implicate have implications for how much stress that we're under for the kinds of things that you know are affecting our health and well-being. Because if you're constantly under stress, if you're constantly preparing yourself to, okay, here I gotta go deal with this crap again, or you know, you're in DC around the idea of around some election cycle and you're like, okay, you know, am I going to have to walk out the house and hear somebody say something stupid about the election or Mm -hmm. about, you know, some assumption about who I'm going to vote for or some assumption about, you know, how critically I'm going to look at the candidates and whether or not I'm going to vote for somebody just because, you know, they tend to tend to favor black candidates or because I've actually done the you know, a more critical analysis. And I realized, no, this person actually does have more interest, more of my interest at heart. But yourself for things that you may not actually experience. Nothing stupid may actually happen to you. Nothing racist may actually happen to you. (laughs) But because you built your body up and you sort of put yourself on guard, you don't put your, your fists up and so forth, your body is responding. It's sort of having that preparatory fight or flight. And mm-hmm. so because we kind of start to have that, that it wears and tears on your body. Um, and so that that type of um, what a colleague of mine, Arlene Geronimus characterizes weathering. So if you think about just the wear and tear of being outside in, in bad weather and so forth, that it wear just it's it has it's, it has negative effects on you just by experiencing it that much. Those kinds of things have implications for your health. And so how you respond to that, how you deal with that, we have to just be mindful of that and take the time to 
heal, protect ourselves, create safe spaces for ourselves so that we can be ready to deal with those kind of things when they do come. That's interesting to think about because, you know, I was in a, in a previous um, position and some of the things that I felt were internal in my body and I didn't, it, it took me a minute to understand what was happening. But now hearing you say, because of, because of the environment in which I was going in, my body was reacting to that and um, not being able to, and there was nothing that I could really do about it unless I made changes mm -hmm. to, you know, you either change your environment or find ways to, to manage that. And we in the, in our communities, maybe because we don't have, we're not equipped with those tools. We, we think it's, you know, it's symptomatic until it goes away or until it, has some larger implications on our or, health. Or it's simply not an option for you to avoid that setting. Yeah. yeah. Like you got to go to work and you know that, I mean, we just saw this, unfortunately, with the, the Lincoln University issue with the, the woman who was in a high ranking position and had the issues with the president and unfortunately died by suicide because she was getting so much pressure and just having so much of a negative experience. I'm sure some people would say, why don't you just quit the job? And I don't know enough of her life circumstances and whatever, but a lot of people just can't quit a job just because they treat you like crap. And it's not an option to just not do it because your other people are, are counting on you to mm. fulfill those responsibilities and so forth. So it's not right. as simple as I'm just not going to deal with that today or I'm just not going to go there. Like you've got to, you know, man or woman and or non-gender binary you got to you know fulfill responsibilities that are important to you right and right. that's going to put you in some cases in harm's way in ways that we don't always fully appreciate when we talk about we give simplistic explanations for how we should handle certain situations not realizing that all of those are not on the table as options for people to engage in right 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 okay two more two more things that I want to talk about um mm -hmm. Hey, you know, because I was looking at, we just had November that came out, uh, I guess November and November, but we passed that. But they had five things every man should know and do. So I just wanted you to, we wanted to go over these categories and see what you think about them, you know, especially for black men. And one of them was spend time with people that make you feel good. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you. so, I mean, yeah, we've got it. You've got, you can't live your life just thinking about yourself as an instrument, as a tool to help care for, you know, put food on the table and do mm -hmm. all those kind of things. And unfortunately in middle age in particular, when we sort of shift, you know, usually from is middle age is usually when you shift from a very much a me focus to a we focus. So middle age tends to be when you start to have family, when you start to have um, a you're trying to usually, if you're going to have a career instead of a series mm -hmm. of jobs, you're going to try to build that. You, you know, may have a partner, life partner and so forth, but it's, it's, you start to have to consider other people. Whereas in adolescence, um, we talk about extended adolescence, but right. you can be in your twenties and you're still very focused on, oh, all I got to do is take care of myself, but you have to find people who feed your spirit and at least help you allow you space to be you. And so, yes, that is a critical one. But that's, that, and that's interesting, not interesting, but that's one of the things that we don't we don't do as well mm -hmm. we don't we don't have a com our community of men maybe five you know four or five where we can we can hang out and 
and enjoy each other's company and maybe in a variety of different things too you know we might be able to connect over uh the super bowl but in regards to just everyday more regular events we can't do that and um but that's we don't do that as well Mm -hmm. and that's that's again when we talk because we were talking you know before we actually came on about our mighty men program and some of the other sort of interventions that we've done part of the reason that we created we do interventions to promote health and well-being of black men in small groups is to create some of those spaces that are not organically being created in our lives and particularly again during this phase of life where you are in your 30s 40s 50s and even sometimes 60s we don't like you're saying we move out of the space where we prioritize making time for those friendships for those relationships where you are just doing things that make you feel good and working and being with friends that that make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we've got to find it's as one of my community mentors used to say, it's a both and not an either or you've got to still make time for those things that feed you and feed your spirit while you do those other things that are also important for you to be accountable, responsible for other people in your life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then another one was talk more. So that so means that, that would is that would is a little like <laughs> so one it makes the assumption that men don't talk enough. And if you actually I, I kind of push back on this, the same thing that people often say that men don't seek help, good information, they won't talk about their problems, that um that the reason that the rate of dying by suicide is so high among men is because we won't ask for help and so forth. When you actually look at the data, when you actually talk to men themselves, that's not actually true. Mm. Um, most of the people who die by suicide have reached out to somebody else for help in the in the in the weeks to months prior to that. They've actually explicitly expressed the need for help, gone and sought help, and it has not even professional help, and it has not necessarily yielded them not doing mm. what eventually led to their demise. So talking so it's, is not, so it's a is not of it, you know matter of people listening. Right. It's yeah. it's the same thing as we we're talking about with information, quantity and quality, like talking more is not the same thing as talking and having it be a, good, a better relationship, having you feel like you've actually been heard, mm-hmm. having you feel like it was actually supportive and somebody actually understood your pain, your experience, your stress, you know, who you are and what you're actually trying to achieve. So more in and of it, I get they're trying to make these things pithy and, and quick, right. but <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 plays in too much into a narrative that I don't know that we're finding is quite as true as we always once thought. Okay, okay, and and then the other one, which is also and maybe it's a little pithy too, but uh, knowing nuts in it, knowing your nuts, but I guess it's basically knowing. Well, that's about screening. Yeah, screenings, yeah. Well, that's yeah, because um, testicular cancer tends to be something that that men die of, particularly in younger years, um, and that prostate cancer, you know, um, depending on where the, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's important. You need to know. Right. I, I would say know more about your health more generally than even just thinking about right you that know, just nuts. that. Yeah, and and, it's, and I guess that the one thing is that take out the, I guess, for lack of it, the homophobic part of the, because it's, it's about checking and, and, you know, you need to know, you need to know what those issues are, because of course, that's not something that you're going to be able to see and it's easily treatable. 
Well, there are things that are like what they're the part of the principle of what they're saying is you should know again what's normal for you. Right. So it's helpful again for you being a good partner with your doctor and nurses and so forth for you to know I'm not used to having this lump here. This is not normal that this thing is here. Right. Um, you know, me going to the bathroom 15 times a night, that is not normal for me because there's aren't there's the no, version of normal for you is going to be different than other people. Right. So right. it's, it's a getting comfortable and knowing your body, knowing what is normal for you so that when you go to people that they are not putting stereotyping in a way, or just saying, Oh, you're a man who fits these particular criteria. I'm going to assess this in this way. Like you have to understand what they're actually saying is relevant to you. And you need to be able to give them information about, you know, here's what is normal for me. And it just may be different where certain numbers don't apply to you in the same mm-hmm. way as it does for somebody else. Uh, okay. And, and we kind of covered the move uh, more, know your numbers, so to speak. Um, and the other one is just move more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess we've kind of covered that too, because. Well, but just, just to say that physical activity has benefits that we're, that are be- that are more than just what happens to your physical health. It's actually, um, it's hard for people when they're depressed or have you know um, negative moods and so forth to find the energy and the motivation to be active. But when they've been able to do that, it actually is as as effective of a treatment of depression as you know like as medication and mm-hmm. sometimes as counseling. It has benefits for just not just your health and your heart, but it has benefits to your overall well-being in ways that we don't always fully appreciate. So being active is really important mm. um, for benefit. And even if it's in small bunches, small doses and so forth, we have to find ways to do that. Um, you know, as much as, you know, you have to eat, you don't have to move. Um, it is important to make time to move and make that a priority as much as we do with, with eating and so forth and knowing your numbers, like you're saying, um, is finding the age appropriate. What are the, 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 the things that you need to know about that are put you at it's, um, cancers and heart disease are the two cancers, heart disease and diabetes, which is a risk factor for heart disease. Right. Right. Well, Dr. Griffith, this has been very informational and this has been great um i'm thank you for being on today and before you go i always like to end the show with this question it's always a surprise um because i really want to just get your um, raw response um because we we're always as black men and are doing so much or you know we take on a lot uh in our in our in our lives and we don't necessarily think about um, ourselves and what we need. So the question I have is for you to answer is, as a black man, how are you feeling right right now? Hopeful. Hopeful. Okay. Yeah. Then why is it? Why are you? Why hopeful? I don't like the alternative. Um, is, <laughs> okay. Is, is one answer. Um in my own personal life, things that have, have taken a while for them to materialize as opportunities are now starting to, um, that I've had to be patient with, and I'm not always good at being patient, 
um, are start, that patients, whether I've had it or just been forced to 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 have it, um, have started to to yield, bear some fruit. So, and I think it's just um, it's hard to in this particular moment where there's so much. Um, it's really hard to um, to anchor yourself in anything other than positivity and hope. Mm, okay. Well, um, that's great. And I thank you for coming on today and informing our uh, population that's watching either today or will listen on the podcast. And, uh, and I look forward to hearing more about the Center for Men's and Health Equity, especially since it's at Georgetown and all the great work that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak podcast. I uh, look forward to seeing uh, all of you soon and you guys have a great night.